I remember singing that song many, many years ago in a little Methodist church I grew up in so that we could argue with the Baptists, whether that's Methodist or Baptist. I'm not sure. But um, the question I have is, if the Lord didn't share with you what was coming, would you still trust him? Somebody posed that question to me a lot of years ago. If you didn't know everything that's going to be in heaven, would you still trust him? It's an interesting question, isn't it? really brings our faith into perspective. All right. Well, anyway, there's your sermon for today. So welcome. Glad you came. Hope you have a good day. It's good to see you this morning. Just a quick announcement. Uh, those of you who have taken part in our Disciples in Action classes over the years, we're planning on starting those uh, September the 9th. Okay, we'll have more details for you coming up uh, in the days ahead. So make sure you watch for emails and whatnot. All right. So September the 9th, that's the second Wednesday night in September. I'm anxious to get started in some shape or form, and I will make sure that that happens. Sorry to those of you who are listening by Facebook. My brain went blank and forgot to put my mic on. So they're probably all saying, turn your mic up. So welcome. Good to have you all with us today. All right, so let's pray, and uh, we're going to get into the second part of what we began last week in uh, finishing up the issue of personal retaliation. Okay, personal retaliation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our gathering, for lifting up our voices. And I just pray now that you'd open our hearts and we might hear you speak as we always pray uh, that you would do so. Lord, we don't delight in coming just to fulfill some obligation, but we come to sit at your feet every Sunday morning so that we can collectively hear from you and grow and be the people that you want us to be. Lord, as we learned at the beginning of this last week, it's a very challenging subject for us. Uh, We are not easily uh, persuaded to let things go when we have been wronged in some way. And so, Lord, let us hear your words and let us realize who we are in you as you have come to rescue our souls from the tyranny of sin. So thank you for your love and thank you for your grace, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so part two, a Christian and personal retaliation. Okay, some of you might be saying, yeah, I like retaliation. So preach it, brother. Let me hear what you have to say. But uh, it may not go the way that you're thinking it will. Let's stand and honor the word of the Lord and read verses 38 through 42 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, you may be seated. So four statements here that the Lord makes that are very, very challenging, very, very challenging words. Now, they may not mean a lot to you, but we're going to try to give you some historical references that will help you to know where he's coming from that will make more sense. You may be reading these, in other words, and saying, gosh, none of that really applies to me today. I don't understand what the Lord is using as illustration. Well, hopefully you will by the time we're done. But let me just begin with this thought. I want to read to you a little illustration of a true story, and you'll remember this as I start reading this, of a, a church that had just a horrific situation happen to them uh, just, I guess it's been maybe a couple years ago now. I'm not sure. I should have looked up the date. But it goes like this. Just days after Dylan Roof ruthlessly took the lives of nine church members, 
Family members of the victims remarkably began offering statements of forgiveness to him during a bond hearing. The daughter of Ethel Lance fought through tears to speak directly to Dylan. And this is a direct quote. You took something very precious away from me and I will never talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. Unquote. Felicia Sanders, the mother of Twanza Sanders, also directly addressed him, quote, We welcomed you Wednesday night into our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Twanza Sanders is my son, but Twanza was my hero. Twanza was my hero. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you, unquote. It's an amazing story, really, isn't it? You just think about the atrocity of something like that and the sheer terror and the shock that must have come to those people, those precious folks, as they were just gathered any other Wednesday night, just like you and I would do uh, for studying the Bible and more than welcoming anybody who comes in. And this was the result of that particular evening. And so as I thought about some of this, I thought my immediate reaction in my flesh would be, how tragic how shocking this is. I remember hearing the story originally. Do you remember hearing the story? And just wondering how in the world could anybody do such a thing to just innocent, God-fearing people for best we know. I mean, that's why they were there, is to study the word of the Lord. But more so, as I read this illustration, I thought, how could people forgive someone like that? How is that possible? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It can only be through God, right? I mean, God is the one who gives us the power to forgive anyone of any situation that we may have experienced. And forgiveness is what God requires of us. In fact, just a couple verses here, and there are many in Scripture, but just a couple of them. As Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It's a, it's a staple of the Christian life. Colossians 3.13, Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And then, of course, Jesus, even in the next chapter, as we get to that soon, will be verse 12. He says to the disciples, this is how you're to pray. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so forgiveness is a foundational truth of the Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, does it? And certainly it's easy when easier when we have circumstances that are not to this level. But the bottom line, God's people are to be different because we belong to him. And that's really the theme of this entire section, this whole three chapters of Matthew's gospel, is that because of his death for us, we have been changed. And that's really the identifying mark of a true believer. We have been changed. We're no longer that person that thought like we once did, acted like we once did, felt like we once did because we have been changed. He gave his life for us. We've been reborn, the Bible tells us, into a new spirit different from the world. And that's what the Lord wants the people to know. Again, my people, if Jesus were saying this, are different from the rest of the world. They're just different. And again, I have several illustrations that I could have read you this morning. In fact, I was struggling with which one to give to you because they all were so pertinent and so beautifully done talking about how different God's people really are. 
And so I think we need to understand from this get-go here this morning that we are to be different people. That is what the Lord is proclaiming in his message to us. You are to be different. And so as he's addressing the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that could really be the subject line of everything in the sermon. You're to be different. You're not to be like the world. You're to be different. Now, the issue Jesus is talking about today is over personal issues. Personal issues and how we are to react when something is done wrong to us personally. Okay? So this becomes very personal. And that's Jesus' point. Not when something happens to someone, that's a certain situation, of course, we love, or someone close to us, that's part of it. But this is about when something happens to us personally. Okay? And he's going to address those in four ways. Four areas of humanity that we are all affected by, that we all feel the effect on. So let's look at the first one. Comes from verse 39. This is the issue of self-respect. Self-respect. We are all people who want to be treated with great self-respect. So look what he says in verse 39. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, that phrase has been repeated many, many, many times over throughout the years. But do we really understand what the Lord is saying here? Well, in the Jewish world, to strike the face was not only to strike the face of an individual or just a person physically, but it was really to speak against that part of them which is most dear. It's to deal with the inner self of the person, the part of the person that holds the most honor. Now, you and I, we look at our faces a lot, right? We spend a lot of time on our faces. And the reason is, is because our faces are important to us. Not just because of how people see us, but because it identifies, even for us, who we are in ourselves, inwardly. And so in the Jewish world, what Jesus is doing here is bringing out an illustration that they would have understood would have been one of the most demeaning acts that anybody could do to another person. That's what was happening here, because it denied the respect of another person. If you wanted to say it like this, it was like telling a person, you are less valuable than me. And that's what the physical strike would would, uh, institute or create in the mind. Almost as if you are less than human. Again, because it attacked the very soul of that person. It was designed to get to the essence of who that person was and show them that there was little to no respect for them. So in the face of that, the Lord now says, if you want to be my true follower, when someone disrespects you, again, now this is all personal, whether it's literal or whether it's figurative, you're not only to let them do that, but you are to turn the other side and let them do it even more if that's what is necessary. Because when you turn your cheek, literally or figuratively, and it can be either one of them, you're showing what's in your heart. And that's really the point. The Lord wants you to know and wants you to express that you are a person of his. You, and therefore you are not a vengeful person. You don't seek retaliation personally. This is not the makeup of God's people. God's people are humble people. We are humble and gentle in spirit, which is exactly how he started this whole sermon. If you remember with the Beatitudes. 
Go back to verse 3 and verse 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are people who are, King James uses the word meek, I think. Talking about those who have anger under control, if you will. Their power is under control. They are self-controlled people. Verse 5 was, blessed are the gentle. Those that are not doormats, but those people who react properly to anything that comes at them personally. And so basically the Lord is saying you're proving that you are more concerned with reflecting the Father, with reflecting God, than you are with respect for yourself. And that's usually where we go wrong, isn't it? It's very challenging to feel the threat against us in our self-respect or to be disrespected. Often we've heard people say, you will not disrespect me. And there's certainly a place for that. But the reality is, the Lord is saying, is that we are not to take up for ourselves personally. We are to turn the other cheek. Now you might be saying, well, but Jesus even retaliated against evil, so how could this be what he's meaning here? Like when he was in the temple, and we often go back to that, when he turned over the money changers table, table, and we would have to say, yes, that is true. Jesus certainly did retaliate in that sense, but here's the difference. The difference was his retaliation in every setting, whenever it was, was always for the sake of another person. His retaliation was always in protection of somebody else and where the rights of others needed to be protected. But when it came to himself, listen to what we're told. Matthew 26, when he was on the cross, Actually, before that, they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. There you go. That's that again, that idea. Now you understand what the meaning behind the slapping was in the Jewish context. And prophesied to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. Now those were the Roman soldiers doing that, but to Jesus, a Jew, he would have understood what that meant. Luke 23:34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That was because when it came to himself personally, he didn't retaliate. Now you say, well, that's easy for him to do because he's God. I mean, we often feel that sometimes, right? We'll say, oh, but God can do that because he has better power and greater ability over himself than I do. Well, that doesn't help us when we listen to what Peter says, though. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, notice very carefully, and I'll read this slowly, and listen, listen as the Spirit identifies some specific things here. Peter says, what credit is there if when you sin, in other words, when you do something wrong and you know it and you're harshly treated for it and you endure it with patience. In other words, that's really no big deal because you did something wrong. So you're not really making a mark on anything. But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently and you endure it patiently, this finds favor with God. And we'd say, why, Peter? Well, he goes on. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in as, an, as an example, leaving for you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus is basically saying now in his lesson on that sermon, don't let your sinful nature dictate who you are in me. 
In other words, don't let it overwhelm you. Don't let it overtake you. And we've studied that in the past. When someone treats you poorly, don't retaliate. That's his message. Take another slap if you need to before you would take matters into your own hands. Do you feel the the struggle with that? I mean, our sinful natures just don't agree with that. We rise up against every fabric of that by saying, but I have my dignity. I have my self-respect. And that really is the point. That Jesus is flipping our feelings around our self-worth, turning it around and asking us a question that would basically be like this. As a child of the king, how much dignity do you have? And we would say eternal dignity, eternal self-respect, right? In the eyes of God, it doesn't really matter what the world thinks of us or how the world treats us because our Father holds great self-respect for us because we are His children. I mean, think about it. What did the Lord do for us because we were so worthy to Him? He came to the earth when He didn't have to, right? He gave up His life as a sacrifice for us when he didn't have to. He paid our debts for us for the sins to his father. He cleared our account between us and the father so we could be in heaven. He justified us, a legal declaration, making us free people to be in his eternal home with him. We are sons and daughters of God. I mean, so to God, we have an infinite amount of value and self-respect in his eyes. So the point is, if we fight back, then we're really denying everything that we say we believe about how the the Father looks at us. We deny our fellowship with him in, in all the ways that he reacted and how he wants his people to react. And so Jesus is really cutting to the core here of how we really need to look at ourselves When it comes to self-respect, he says, basically, you're to remember your value that you have in Christ. I don't need to retaliate because I know where my value lies. I know to whom I belong. And that's where our mind should stay. So we shouldn't let the physical act take away from who we are in Christ. And don't think it's up to us to repay someone when something has been done to offend us. God will take care of that, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we look at a situation like the illustration we read about the shooter who came in and killed these people that were serving the Lord, studying the Bible. And we want to say, no, vengeance needs to be taken care of. Yesterday, I don't know if you heard this or not, but the little five-year-old boy that was shot in the head by a 24-year-old just down in the Raleigh area. And we feel the weight of that and we say, How could anybody ever want anything other than vengeance and retaliation for the innocence of life, right? And I understand all the dimensions behind all of that, but just look at the situation for face value. We feel the weight of this. And you can imagine if we're sitting on the side of the mountain and we're listening to the Lord preach this, we're internally going, I don't know about that. How is that going to work? And that's Jesus' point. Point number one is, And throughout all of this is you're different. You're different. 
don't handle life in the way you normally would handle life any longer when it comes to personal retaliation. You're different. So be different. And then he goes on to a second thing where now he's going to go a little deeper into our well-being. This is number two. Our well-being or our personal welfare. Okay, Verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And again, we would say, okay, no big deal. But what does Jesus really mean here? Well, he's talking specifically, and notice the word sue there, S-U-E. He's talking about a situation where you are legally taken to court or there's a legal issue against you. Where something, someone has, at least in their mind, some just reason to bring you before the judge. Okay, that's what he's talking about. You're to show them, even in that setting, that you follow Christ. And you're not tied to anything in this life. Nothing in this life. So, if they want to sue you, then your heart should be, then even take this. If you're suing me for this, then I want to offer you this as well. Whatever that may be. Because that would be such a act of humility and such a witness to the person that God knows they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle it. Now you say, now wait a minute. It's one thing to take a slap in the face. That stings for a little while, but then it goes away. But to offer up personal things in a personal welfare sense, I don't know if I could do that. Why would I let someone take things that I've worked hard for? And things that I have spent a lot of life earning. Are you telling me that I'm just to give up whatever I should give up because somebody asked me for something? And no, that comes back to the point. This is talking about a legal situation here. It's not, Jesus is not saying just because you have a nice dress or a nice house or a nice coat or whatever it might be, just let them have it. That's certainly the loving thing to do if you can afford to do that. But the issue here is in a legal sense, when somebody has some legal issue against you. And so in Jesus' day, now let's see where he's coming from, so we'll understand the context. When a person had no money or possessions to pay the debt that was being required of them from the lawsuit, the court would often require of them to pay the debt through clothing because clothing was a precious commodity. In fact, most people only had what would be similar to our inner clothing like shirt, pants, whatever. They didn't wear these kinds of clothes. You know that from the pictures. They wore mostly a robe type of a thing that was covered by an outer coat. So they might have several pieces of clothing in their inward body, but most people only had one outer coat because things were expensive and life was just hard to come by. So Jesus is saying here, Your heart should be such that if somebody sues you for something, don't just give them your undergarment or the clothing next to your body, but give them even extra. Go ahead and offer them the thing that is very precious to you in cold weather, which would be your coat. Give to them that extra part of you and be willing to give up even your self-preservation if necessary. And so they would have understood this and say that, okay, whatever makes you most comfortable from the elements of this life, be willing to let that go. Now for us, as I was saying a minute ago, to take one of our coats would probably be a joyful occasion. 
Right? You go to your closet and you're saying you're being sued and uh, the judge says, okay, give them one of your coats. And you're like, oh, wonderful. I can clean out my closet. Right? This would be awesome. And say, look, here, take this one. And by the way, don't worry about giving it back. That'd be kind of our attitude there. But think of it something like this. If it's more precious to you, something that gives you a sense of security, whatever that might be, the Lord says, be willing to give up that precious item as well. And again, if someone legitimately has a lawsuit against you because they are legally obligated to it, give it to them. Don't begrudge them. Just do what they're requiring and what the legal system requires. Don't be bitter because this is all about the heart, right? That's Jesus' point. Get your eyes off of the physical, off the tangible, and look at your heart. That's what I want you to expose, And certainly, don't retaliate. That's not your place to do that. And we see that all the time, don't we? Countersuits. You sued me, I'll sue you. You sue me again, I'll sue you again. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Things stay tied up in the legal system forever. And by the way, that happens to Christians. And so can I offer this footnote? And we studied this years ago in 1 Corinthians. And if you've studied 1 Corinthians, you know this. God never wants a lawsuit between a brother and sister in the Lord. That's very clear in 1 Corinthians. Because that'd be a terrible testimony, which unfortunately many people have ruined by taking people to court. And then the church, Paul says, is drugged through all of that. And the things of Christ are spilled out on the ground, basically. And in reality, a Christian should never sue another person Quite honestly, they should always be the recipients of a lawsuit if that's what's going to have to happen. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching in this. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to not retaliate. We give of ourselves. Even when someone wants something of us, we give more. And so our hearts are not to be vindictive. We're not to try to pursue things that will be the best to the best of my interest. Jesus is saying, just show your heart that you're truly sorry and that you wish it had never happened. Boy, what a difference, isn't it? What a difference from the way we normally react and the way we respond. And by the way, give them more than they ask. And they won't know what to do with it. One of the greatest illustrations, at least that I could think of biblically, was the life of Joseph. You go back to Joseph for just a minute, and let's put ourselves in his place for just a minute. You remember Joseph as a young man was taken from his father, Uh, By his own brother's will, the the group of brothers hated him. If you've grown up in a situation like that, you can appreciate that. They literally hated him. And they sought to kill him. And then Reuben said, no, we can't do that. Let's get him out of the pit that they threw him in. And let's sell him. And they did. They agreed. And they sold him to a caravan going into Egypt. And while there, Joseph, imagine the emotions that Joseph must have gone through. You have to really appreciate these stories and feel what the person must have been feeling in order to understand the context of what God is getting across here. And we've talked about this many times before. I brought up Joseph last week. You remember the story and how it goes is that God placed Joseph in a place of position, uh, second to Pharaoh, and realized that God had placed him there, that God was working behind the scenes doing all this, and this is what I want to emphasize to us. But listen to the emotion of all of this, just you put yourself as a fly on the wall in that moment. 
when Joseph realizes that these are his brothers and he's going to reveal himself to them. There's a couple things that happen in the interim before all of that, but this is when he reveals himself in chapter 45 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, have everyone go out from me. Just imagine that scene for just a second as Joseph perhaps would be something like myself standing up here in front of the brothers and all of his entourage and everything and the the display of all that Egypt has. And inwardly, he's beginning to feel the emotion of all the weight of those years. And now he needs to reveal what God has in his hearts. And so he says, get out of here, all of you. And so we're told there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. But look at verse 2. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Imagine that scene for just a minute. Have you ever wept that bitterly before? Where you just couldn't contain the sound and there was no way that you could keep that from being heard by everybody around you? And then we read in verse 3, Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The first thing he wants to know. What about dad? Is dad still alive? Is he still living? Tell me, how are things? Obviously missing his father whom he loved. But his brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. Do you see the point here? Already we're learning from Jesus' word that the brothers are going, we don't know what to do here. Because now this is our brother that we thought was dead, that we had ruthlessly and out of our own evil hearts put him away. But he's speaking to us. Why is he doing that? Why is he treating us this way? And so they were obviously confounded. And so look what Joseph says. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. What? Joseph should have been the guy who was angry with them, right? He's got all the power of Egypt. He had everything at his disposal to retaliate. But he didn't. And here's why he saw something far bigger than himself. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6, For the famine has been in these lands for two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Look again, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and rule over all the land of Egypt. What is Joseph saying? He's saying, listen, God has shown me to get my eyes off myself. My life is not about me. My life is about God's plan and what he is effectually working in the hearts of his people. So you see, it becomes a very apt illustration for what Jesus is saying here to each of us. Listen, your life is not your own. This is why you're different. You're to give up your life. You're not to retaliate personally for anything. You're to reflect me. Because we don't know, beloved, what God is doing in that situation, in the heart of that person listening or the hearts of those people who are watching. We don't know. But when we violate the principles of God, how are they going to ever see our Father? Imagine the scenario here if the people in Joseph's life had seen the opposite in Joseph, how would they have ever known that God was the one who was behind all of what was being done 
the story would have turned out far differently, wouldn't it? Do you see how our retaliation can turn what God has wanted for us and from us into something that would be quite negative in his perspective? And this is what Jesus is saying. All right, let's look at a third one he brings up here. He challenges personal freedom. Personal freedom. Or you could say their liberty or independence. Notice in verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You say, that's not a big deal. What is that all about? That doesn't make any sense. Well, let's back up just for a minute and understand the point. Nothing challenges us more than having to give up our personal freedoms, right? I mean, the reason it's been said, and I don't know that this is true of everyone, but the reason that people often fade away in their older years is because their freedoms are taken from them. One of the worst things you can do to a man who's been busy all his life with his hands is to make him sit in a chair and not do anything. You take away a person's freedoms and they end up dying far quicker. We are people built for freedom. In fact, our freedoms have been so dear to us, we have gone to war over them. We have killed other people to defend our freedoms. It is what's causing people to riot in their own minds. And I don't agree with all of that, but it is causing them to defend what they believe to be their riots and protests over what they believe to be right. We in our Constitution talk about how our freedoms are inalienable. In other words, they belong to us, that all people should be free, free from the tyranny of others, free to choose, to speak our minds, to write what we want to write. We call that freedom of speech, freedom to go where we want to go without hindrances, freedom to own, freedom to be what we want to be without somebody telling us what to do. It is innate in the sinful nature of mankind to want to be free. But the Lord is saying here, Our freedoms or our personal liberties are not what should be the priority. And in fact, our freedoms have been challenged over the years in many ways since the beginning of time. In fact, I read an interesting story of a pastor who was putting this message together and he said the Persians way back had really the first Pony Express system. And the idea was that the letters or the mail of sorts would be carried to the various areas of Persia. And if for some reason the rider got stopped for whatever reason, then the Persian government could consign or grab whoever is closest to go finish the route, regardless of what that person was involved in or who they were. And what's interesting now as we bring this into context is the Romans did the same thing. The Roman government had a law that said that as a Roman soldier, you could conscript or you could assign or you could get a person legally who was not uh, a Roman soldier to carry your pack for you a mile. They couldn't get them to go further than that, but they could require the person to take their pack for them at least a mile. Now the problem with that was is that the Roman soldiers would often use that as a way to demean people to get them to look like a servant of theirs. And so the Jewish people who hated the Roman soldiers already would feel that and know that when a Roman soldier was requiring a Jewish person to carry their pack a mile, it was very demeaning to them. It it affected them in their hearts as an individual. And often because that Roman soldier didn't just need somebody to carry the pack for them, they would just do it for sport. 
often playing the game with them by saying, hey, you're going that direction, I'm going this direction, so I'm going to make you carry the pack a mile this direction when you were going the opposite direction. Well, you can imagine if you're walking by foot, that gets pretty tiresome after a while. You wouldn't want that kind of thing to happen. And so obviously then the context becomes, even though this was a Roman rite, the idea is you are to give of your heart so much that even when that's required of you, then you give the extra mile. And we see this law even further. You remember when Jesus was carrying his cross up the hillside and could no longer carry it. Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 32, that Simon was called and pressed into service, the text says, to bear his cross. Well, the reason Simon was pressed into service was just that. This was the law. The Roman soldier grabbed him and said, here, you are to carry the cross, and he had no choice but to follow through with it. In fact, interestingly, I wondered if we had ever suffered or struggled through anything like that in our country. And yes, there has been, even during the time of the Civil War. Some of you historians will know this better than I do, but it was called the Enrollment Act of 1863, or the Civil War Military Draft Act, which was to provide fresh manpower to the Union Army during the time of the Civil War. They could call upon any young man into service, and we've had that, right, over the years, Right now there is, and I incorrectly spoke and said that there's a draft going on right now, and I should have said this morning that there is an enlistment for the draft, at least now, in our country. It was stopped for a while, but it's back again. has been for quite a few years. But in, even in this Enrollment Act in the Civil War, there were flaws in the legal system because even though it was a right thing to be able to do or it was a legal thing to be able to do, what would happen is the wealthy men who didn't want to go to war could pay off the government basically by conscripting or hiring a poor person to take their place. But the poor person couldn't get out of it because they didn't have enough money to pay their way out. And so the wealthy person could get out of going to war, but the poor person couldn't. And so there was a huge flaw in that whole system. So now there are just some examples of how this was working in history. But just imagine that you and me for just a minute and we're living under this kind of law. Suppose you're a mom and you've done everything you can do to get your kids out of the house and you've fought tooth and nail to get those youngsters in the car and you're tired and irritated and everybody's in a bad mood. You know those days? And you're driving down the road and you're thinking, okay, I think we can make it. And all of a sudden a police officer pulls up behind you and says, ma'am, where are you headed? You say, you don't know what my morning's like, blah, 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 blah. What's, what's the problem? He says, well, I need you to carry this legal document to South Dakota right now. And you go, what? Yep, that's the law, and I need you to do it. You're the one who's the closest to do it. I mean, imagine that. It sounds foolish, but this was the same kind of idea. And so the Lord says, as my child, if somebody wants to infringe upon your liberties your personal freedoms, then you go above and beyond the call of duty. You do it. And you do it for my name's sake. You give up your freedom because you belong to me. And by doing so, you show that your priority is to follow God, even at great expense to yourself. And show that real freedom 
Real freedom, real liberty is knowing that one day we will be with him forever. Amen? Our freedom is not in this life. Who we say we are, even as Americans, beloved, is not bound up in this life. You and I have been called out of our sinful lives. Not that being an American is sinful. I'm not saying that, but I'm simply saying to fight for our religious, our, our freedoms over what God requires of us is wrong as a Christian. God calls us to follow him first without equivocation, even as precious as our freedoms are. To not choose righteousness and faithfulness over him or over everything else in this life as far as liberties are concerned is wrong. God wants us to be different. And then finally in verse 42, he says this, that we are to surrender even our material possessions or our property, if that's what's required of us. Verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so if we think about this, I could only simply say that we love our stuff. I mean, we love our stuff. The reason we have our stuff is because we love it. We love it, we love it, we love it, we love it. We love our stuff, right? Give me more stuff. When we get tired of this stuff, we buy more stuff because we want to have stuff. We just love our stuff. And you, you say, no, that's really not me. Well, yeah, it is because you have stuff, right? And the stuff you have is the stuff you have because it feels right because of who you are internally, right? You buy a house because, well, it just feels right. You look at 50 houses and you say, well, this one just seems to be more correct. And they could all have the same amenities, but this one just feels right because we're placing it within the context of who we are. It's me. Or we buy certain vehicles because that just fits me. It just seems to be best for me. We wear certain clothes because they describe me. Right? You look across the room right now and you say, I would never wear that with that. <laughs> right? Why is he or she wearing that with that? You know, We do this to each other all the time because we're about our stuff. Did you know that you can even buy candles now that are most reflective of your personality? It's true. For about 25 or 30 bucks, you can buy a candle that gives off a scent that most reflects your makeup. I mean, we can buy just about whatever we want. Possessions become us, and we become them. Try to take something that belongs to somebody that's precious to them and has some meaning to them, and it's going to be a very hurtful situation, right? We know that. We are as stingy as the day is long over our stuff. But that's what the Lord's point is. He attacks issues that are very sensitive to us. And he says, listen, if that's what's needed for someone else, my people don't hold on to their stuff. They give it away. Because guess what? It ain't your stuff. That's what the Lord is saying. Hebrews 2.10, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. But how about this one back in Deuteronomy 10? And this would have been even more fitting for the Hebrews at this point in Jesus' sermon. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and what? All that is in it. 
all that's in it, Moses would say to the Hebrews in the wilderness. Everything belongs to God. And so when somebody has a need of something, no matter what it is, and we're talking about specifically possessions, and it's a legitimate need, not just somebody who comes along and says, I like your car, give it to me, but it's a legitimate need, then give them their stuff. Give them some of Jesus' stuff. Right? There have been times here at the church over the years where people have wanted and needed to borrow things and we just simply say, well, hey, you know, it's all Jesus' stuff. So let's ask him if he, we mind, if he minds if we give his stuff. And the answer is going to be, of course not. It all belongs to him. The idea is where there's a legitimate need, just give that you can provide. If it's something you can provide and God has blessed you with it, go ahead and give it. And I hope by now we're realizing it's to be with an unbegrudging heart. It's not to be with a defiant giving. It's not like, oh, fine, here, take it kind of idea. Okay, whatever, just have it. Okay, you know, that kind of begrudging idea. And, and in fact, I would say that even if you're not asked directly and you hear of a need, and you've been very good about this over the years, if you hear about a need, uh, then provide it if you can. That's the heart of a true believer. We've been greatly blessed over the years by people who have been just like that, where people will hear of a need when we send out a message through email, some benevolent need or something, and, and you have responded favorably every single time over the years without fail. And that's a a blessing and a real testament. And so that's what the Lord is talking about here. So the point in all of this is to fight for the rights of an individual is really to have self on the throne, is to elevate the self above God. But remember that God owns everything and everything belongs to God. Jesus says you can't serve God and money at the same time, right? Just can't do it. It doesn't work that way. But that also applies to everything. The security that we have, our self-worth, our self-value, our freedoms, whatever it might be, whatever you want to put in the categories applies to all of this. And the bottom line is when you're able to live this way, you're really dying to self. Sometimes people will ask, how do I know when I'm really dying to myself? How can I tell when I'm really giving up myself and, and I'm no longer concerned about myself. We, we can come up with a false conclusion on that, can't we? I mean, we can feel real good about ourselves and our neighbor will look at us and say, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. So how do we judge this? Well, somebody put it this way. Let me just read this for us and we'll close with this. When you can surrender yourself to others for God's glory and be happy about it, you're dying to yourself. Notice the key phrases. And you're happy about it? A lot of times as God's people will, again, will be kind of miffed by things. When others speak evil of you because you follow Christ and you're at peace, you're dying to self. When others fight you for, your, for their opinion over yours and you can take it peacefully, you're dying to self. Now, some people who have strong opinions will really recoil at that kind of thing. Somebody else has another opinion and they counter their opinion. It's a struggle, but this is a good way to tell whether we're really dying to ourselves in that regard. 
when people disregard your opinion or your advice and when you refuse to let anger rise in you or when you feel you need to defend yourself but stay patient and love anyway, you are dying to self. Boy, these could all be sermons themselves, couldn't they? When you're content with what you have and your circumstances, you're dying to self. When you never refer to yourself in a conversation to trump someone else, you're dying to self. Boy, that's a big one too, isn't it? You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you start talking about some issue of your life and they'll just say, yeah, that's the way I am. Yeah, that happened to me. Oh, yeah, that's... And it all just kind of became about them. When you don't seek the praise of others, you're dying to self. When you're at peace with being unknown by the world, you're dying to self. When someone has something you don't have but always wanted and you can rejoice with them, you're dying to self. When you can receive rebuke or correction from someone who is less equipped than you, you're dying to self. And each one of those, again, could be a message. And lots and lots and lots of illustrations under each one of those subjects. Basically, Jesus, beloved, is saying, and he'll say this later in chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the message of the Lord. Again, beloved, if you and I were sitting on that hillside on that day and we were listening to what he was saying, it'd be very different from what our natural selves understand and like and don't like. But that's the point. It's a constant barrage of challenges to help us to see our own hearts and how we're really to be. Amen? Okay, well, let's pray and we'll close. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you understand above all people what it's like to be accosted by the sinful attacks in our human system. Lord, even though you were God, the scripture tells us that you suffered through everything, every temptation that could come upon man, yet you were without sin. You endured everything without sin, but you felt the weight of everything that we endure in this life. And yet your message is the same, just through many different illustrations, that we are to deny ourselves. That when we are personally come against We are not to retaliate. We are to stand up for the innocent and stand up for those that we love and stand up for that which is wrong against others. But when it comes to ourselves, we are to entrust ourselves to you. And so, Father, help us to hear what you say to us this morning and help us to begin to apply these truths that the world may take notice that we are so different, so, so different from anything that is normal, quote-unquote, to the world. And Lord, we lift these up to you and pray that you'd honor them, honor the word in our hearts, that we may be faithful witnesses of yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.